Amen. So we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to pick it up in Ephesians 2 at verse 8. If you need a Bible, uh, put your hand up in the air and the guys will bring one to you. Just keep it up until they find you. Last week, we began chapter 2 and we learned that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Uh, But God, and those are important words, but God, who is rich in mercy and full of grace, uh, made us alive in Christ. And so those of us who are in Christ, we know that we're alive in Christ. We're blessed to be alive. And and as we move into these next verses, we're only going to look at three verses this morning, and, and we're going to look at some basic Christian doctrine about our understanding of being saved by grace. Um, however, we're also going to look at what that produces in us. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the text and thinking about, you know, how it applies to life. And I, I was thinking about poetry and writing poetry. Have you ever written poetry? Well, I, I'm probably not the guy to come to if you want to learn how to write poetry. I've tried a few times, but I, for some reason I can never connect to the creative side of myself. I don't, I don't think it exists. That's probably why, but... But, you know, the best poem I can get out is Roses are Red, Violets are Blue, You're Beautiful and I Love You. That's about the extent of it, and, and so I'm, I'm not real good at it. Um, I, I remember my son writing poetry in high school. And I, I don't remember the poem, but the, I'll never forget the title. The title of the poem was, Life Sucks, I Need Ten Bucks. So you, you know that the Malchus men are not the ones you want to go to to learn poetry. Um, however, there are people who can actually write poetry, and when they do, it's actually something that's really beautiful. It's, uh, it's a great work of art. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm just not the guy. Um, but, but as we approach the text, it's going to help us understand uh, that work of art that's in us. We're the workmanship of God. And, and so let's, let's look at these verses. We'll set it up with the, the first two verses in verses eight and nine. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach these verses because we need to understand the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. I know some of you have been saved a long time and you're gonna be looking at me like, you know, let's, let's, let's get through it and get to the other stuff. But this is foundational for us to understand in our Christian life. And, and even those of us who have been saved a long time need to have this like at the forefront of our mind because we're human and, and we tend to look at things weird. And so, uh, this is vitally important for us to understand. It's by grace and grace alone that we're saved. It's not about what you have done or what you can do that makes you acceptable to God. In fact, in chapter 1, we, we saw that the, the end of that chapter, Paul takes us to the heights of exploring the power and authority of the risen and ascended Christ, and then in, in chapter 2, the, the very first part of it, he shows us the depths of our humanity and, and the fact that we're dead in our sins. And, and so Paul illustrates that the weak, the hopeless, uh, lifeless condition of fallen man imprisoned by their own fleshly desires and uh, 
controlled by the world around them, even by Satan. And, and so the, the first words of this chapter show us that, that Paul was intending to contrast the, the life in the flesh with the life in the spirit and what the, the difference between the two are. And, and he, he shows us this contrast of condition. In fact, he, he starts with the, the idea that it's you and he personalizes it to us at the very beginning of this chapter. And, and he wants us to contemplate that contrast between Jesus and us. And, and I want you to do that this morning. I want you to, to contemplate that contrast. Jesus lives because he is righteous. We are dead because we're unrighteous, because we, we are filled with sin. And so there's a contrast between us and him. Jesus is lifted up and seated in the heavens, but we are on this earth and of this earth when we're apart from him. And, and Jesus has been given supremacy and authority over all other power and authority. And we, who are apart from Christ, are under the influence of that power and that authority. And so there's great contrast. Uh, the, the irony of fallen man's predicament that, that he doesn't even realize his condition until after he's saved. Isn't that true? The, the, the people that are still out in the world, they, they think that they're living it up. They think that, that they have the life out partying and doing the things that they're doing. And, and there, there's so much deception in that. They're dead, and they don't even know it. And, and so uh, we were sinners, subject to the wrath of God because of our sin nature, and, and we were born with that nature. It comes through Adam. It's conveyed all the way to us. We're all uh, born with that sin nature. And so in this chapter, Paul shows us this great contrast by the first three verses. He, he shows us and, and takes us to the depths of our soul and shows us that we're dead in our sin. And then the next three verses, four to seven, he, he shows us the contrast to that, that we are lifted up to the heavenlies with Jesus. We, we, we who were dead are now lifted up and we're alive in Christ. What a contrast from death to life, from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom. We, we're alive in Christ. And so, that's where we ended last time, this, this message in, the, in this letter. He, he seems to take us to that place where we're lifted up, and then he just pauses for a moment to reiterate this basic doctrine for us to understand. That we're no longer dead in our sins. We're, we're at this height, and we, we stop, and we look at what he says. It's for by grace you are saved. Through faith. It's not of works. So that no one can boast. And, and folks, that's the, the gospel message in its simplicity. In fact, I don't know anywhere in the scripture where there's a more concise picture of the gospel message in those two verses. It really sums the whole message up in those verses. These, these are the words that the Holy Spirit uses to quicken to the heart of man, to draw them to God. In fact, that's how it happened with me. I, I know that when, when I got saved, when I was, I was in the army out in the middle of the desert on maneuvers and, and, and my idea of what was going to bring satisfaction to my life that day was to go get beer. I was looking for beer. I wasn't looking for the Lord. Had no even thought about the Lord. 
And an army sergeant sat me down. I, I was representing our whole squad. I was going to talk the sergeant into it, you see. And he sat me down and he began to share these simple words of the gospel. Now, up to this point in my life, anytime anybody ever shared the gospel, I could outwit them, I could make them feel stupid, I could uh, you know, use circular reasoning and get my way out of the conversation. But this time, as he was using these simple words, the Holy Spirit captured me. And he captured my thoughts. He captured my understanding and revealed the simplicity of this message. And I got it. It made sense. I knew I was a sinner. I didn't have to be convinced of that. And, and I saw that God reached down into my stupidity and he saved me. Wow. It's powerful. No distractions were in the way any longer. You see, beer was a distraction. My peers were a distraction. And the Holy Spirit went right through all of the distractions and just captured my heart and my attention. In fact, if you're, if you're here today and you're not saved, you, you've never given your life to Jesus, I, I want to encourage you to do something, to put away the distractions. Just set them aside. I know you already have arguments in your mind and you've used them before and all that stuff, but just today... Just sit and let the Holy Spirit reveal truth to you beyond the distractions. And you will learn how it is a person can be saved, how, how you can be born again and have an eternal hope, a personal relationship with a God who's the creator of the universe. You can do that as a fallen man. The answer can be found in these verses. In fact, I want to look at the the second verse first. I want to look at verse 9 and see the negative side of it. He says, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's absolutely critical to understand and believe this, that if a person is going to be saved, salvation does not come through works. It's not generated based on anything that we do. And so we, we have to accept the Bible's teaching that salvation is not by works. And it, that means it goes against everything in our human philosophy and culture. I mean, everything in our culture, we talked about it last week, uh, we, we train our kids to respond and, and to do good works in order to be rewarded. In fact, as I was giving that illustration last week about you know, inflation, $50 per A on your report card, and just kind of made a joke about that. Well, one of the young adults came up to me after third service and said, hey, I did some calculations based on your numbers, $50 per A, and I just realized my parents owe me $7,500. I said, you missed the point. Don't hold your parents hostage to this. But what we do is we train people from the time they can think that good behavior is rewarded. You know, we tell them, if you're, if you're good, I'll buy you a toy. If you're really good, we'll stop and get ice cream on the way home. And, and, and so we, we kind of put that out, and, and so we begin to formulate that in people's mind at a very young age. And so the natural thought is that we think we have to do something in order to gain God's approval and his favor. That, that there has to be something in us that deserves what he's about to give us. It's that performance mentality. But the truth is this, folks. 
We cannot do enough good in our life to erase one sin. And we have multiple sins. We have a whole life full of sin. And we can't even get rid of one of them based on our own behavior. And therefore, our salvation cannot be attached to what we do for God and how well we perform. If that were the case, it would be impossible for us to be saved. And so Paul says, salvation does not come by works. And and our text even gives one reason for, for this. He says, so that no one can boast. Now, could you imagine if God did leave it up to us? And he said, okay, you have to do well. And, and we strive to do our best in life, and we get a few things right, and, and he rewarded us for that, we'd get to heaven and it would be a bragathon. We, we'd be one-upping each other. Well, did you see the time when I did this? And uh, how about when I did that? And, and, and we would be like that Pharisee that's in Luke's gospel that is standing before the Lord saying, I thank my God I'm not like other men who are ad- adulterers and, and they're evildoers and robbers. And you know, trying to put himself above other people, that would be the natural result if it were based on works. Now, as important as that reason is, that it's not by works so we won't boast, that's not the only reason. The the complete sinfulness of humanity contrasted with God's perfect standard of righteousness is another reason. You see, if, if the standard is perfection, because God is perfect, and he can't be in an intimate relationship with people who are imperfect. If that standard is perfection, we cannot achieve that on our own. One sin would disqualify us. We already determined we can't erase any of our sin based on our behavior. See, the entire human race, whether you're Jew or Gentile, religious or non-religious, doesn't matter. You would be disqualified. You can't be perfect when there's sin, a part of your life. Even on our very best day, even the best works that we can produce are stained by sin. And so we can't approach the complete righteousness of God in our own merit and by our own effort. No matter how high we climb in that area of goodness or morality, no matter how hard we strive to be great, it's still going to be stained by sin. And we all fall short. And so, therefore, it cannot be by works. Now imagine with me. Somebody makes this uh, um, swim meet that has a $10 million prize for the winner. And in order to win this, you have to swim from Huntington Beach to Hawaii. And so only three of us, Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer, myself, an average swimmer, and some guy that doesn't know how to swim much at all, we're all enticed by the $10 million, and we think, you know what, $10 million, that's a good thing to push my effort. I I could probably make this happen. And so we all line up at Huntington Beach on the sand, they shoot the gun, we take off, Michael Phelps sets the pace, he's out there setting a pretty hard pace to follow. And so within two minutes, the guy who doesn't swim real well goes under and he drowns. 30 minutes, I get a little tired, and I go down and find Nemo somewhere down at the bottom of the ocean, 
And I'm done. But Michael Phelps, he's an Olympic swimmer, trains regularly. 41 hours he's swimming. He accomplishes 70 miles. He only has 2,417 to go. And he wears out. And he's down. This is the deal. All of us fall miserably short of making it to Hawaii. So it really doesn't matter if you drown in two minutes, 30 minutes, or 41 hours. You're not going to get there in your own effort. It's, it's an impossible task to swim from Huntington Beach to Hawaii. Even with a $10 million reward, you can't push yourself to make it. It's impossible to resolve that distance. And it's the same for righteousness. Even with heaven as the goal, we're going to fail whether it's in two minutes, 30 minutes, 41 hours. We're not going to make it. And we're going to fall short of what it takes to make it on our own effort. And so if we can't do it, then how can it be done? That's a great question. Well, it's answered in verse 8. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now remember, last week we talked about grace. Kind of went through it extensively. Grace is unmerited favor. It's receiving what you do not deserve. By grace, it's, it's, grace is unearned. It is undeserved favor from God. Undeserved blessing from God. There's no way that you can earn salvation when grace is a part of the equation. There's no work that you can do to earn eternal life. It's a gift of God and none of us deserves it. There isn't a, a rule list that will get us there. We'll fail. It's God's gift and it has to be received as a gift from God. It's amazing grace. And, and so, by grace you were saved. And, and he says, this is through faith. Faith in the promise of God. Faith in what Christ has done. You know, I remember when my son got this. This, this is the deal. Gary Jr. was raised in the church. I mean, we, from the time he was born, we, we were Christians already. And so, he grew up with Bible study and youth groups, and mission trips, and everything that, that we are supposed to do to try to train our kids in the way that they should go. And yet, when he turned 18, he went sideways on us, and he started running amok, and, you know, getting into things, and, and you know, we were praying, and praying that the Lord would, would reach him, and, and finally, he moves to Lake Havasu, and eventually ends up at Calvary Chapel Lake Havasu. Pastor Ray Carter preaches a message, and he gets saved. And he called me up, and this is what he said, Dad, I get it. I said, get what? <laughs> he said, no, I understand. I, I heard this message, and I understand that God loves me, and that he saved me, and it has nothing to do with me. And God transformed his life. Because he got it. He recognized that he didn't have to perform. He didn't have to put in his own best effort in order for God's 
approval. It transformed him. It's faith in what God has done. Abraham, we're told, believed God and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if Abraham uh, was accounted righteous because of his works, then uh, he, he would have been able to boast about his own effort and not the Lord. But, but his boast was not in his works. The faith was credited for righteousness. It's because salvation is through grace, through faith in Christ. It, it eliminates boasting. None of us can boast about anything. All I can do is give glory to Jesus and say, praise the Lord for His amazing grace. I was lost as a sinner. I was walking according to the course of this world. I was living after the lust of my flesh. and the lust of my mind, I was by nature a child of wrath. But Jesus reached down, and by reaching down, He lifted me out of that fatal problem of sin. And He washed me off. He set my feet upon a solid rock. And now I stand in heavenly places, according to Paul. Praise the Lord for that. Grace, unmerited favor. That's what sets Christianity aside from all other religions. Back in the early 1900s, there was a debate going on among Christians. They were, they, they had these different groups that had come together and they were debating what the difference between Christianity and the other religions of the world was. And, and some of the participants argued that Christianity was unique because it taught that God became man. Some of the other groups refuted that and said there are other religions that, that basically say the same thing. Some said, well, it's the resurrection. That's what sets it apart. And, and another group said, you know, there are other groups out there that claim of a resurrection in their faith traditions and such. And, and, and so they had this debate going on, and C.S. Lewis walks in the room. He came in late. He was a great defender of Christianity. And, and he listens for a few moments, and he says, hey, what, what is the rumpus all about? That's the word he used. Uh, we don't speak like that now, but what, what's the rumpus all about? And when he learned that the debate was about the uniqueness of Christianity and what makes it different, he said, hey guys, the answer's simple. It's grace. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system that man has ever come up with. Every, if you look at any religious system and you start working through their program, you will realize at some point you have to make yourself acceptable to God. You have to do enough things. You have to, you have to achieve whatever their system says in order to make God happy enough with you so you can go to heaven. Every system has that built into it except Christianity by grace. Grace alone that we're saved. And, and so... Christianity says, although we're feeble, although we're sinful, God's grace forgives us completely. And this is good news. What a gospel that is. What a Savior we have in Jesus. So it's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. We're saved by His grace, God's goodness, not our ability. 
Your faith is the means upon which grace is received. And, and make no mistake about it, we're saved because of the goodness of God. Not because we are faithful people. Even the faith that we exercise comes from Him. It's not our faithfulness, it's His faithfulness. If there's no faith, there's no grace, no salvation. The Scripture tells us it's faith or, or belief that, that brings us about. In Acts 16.31, so, so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. It's faith. That's where salvation comes from. John 1.12, But as many of, as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, it's faith. Acts 13.39 And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's belief. It's faith that justifies. No one has his sins forgiven. No one uh, goes to heaven. No one has peace until there is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the vehicle that God uses for us to receive this precious gift. Faith simply believes God's message of redemption is true. We're hopeless without grace. Believing now, it's important to understand, is an action. It's not a thought. You know, the devil has the thought. He understands who Jesus is. So it isn't just knowledge or a thought. Faith is something you do. Belief is something you do with your life. It's an action. And yet even that faith is a gift of God. We can't believe unless God does a work in us prior. We're we're blinded by our own deadness, by the God of this age, Satan. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You know, when I was listening to the gospel message, I had many times heard it, and yet at that particular moment, the blinders came off. The Holy Spirit revealed this truth. And it made sense, and I acted upon that truth. I put faith in what I was hearing. Folks, if you came here as a skeptic, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, I think if you make an honest assessment of what we're reading today, understanding that you're a sinner, you don't have to be convinced of that. I didn't have to be convinced of it. I knew that I was a sinner. I had sinned against God. And, and so if you're honest about it, you'll realize what we're reading is true. All of us have sinned. God has uh, made a way now for that sin to be removed. And I, I think if you're honest, you'll sense the Lord drawing you to himself. When Jesus shed his blood while on the cross, it was to pay the price for your sin and my sin. So believe it today. Receive the gift. God's holding it out to you. So what's the result then, once, once we get this? And, and I realize for you who are saved, you're like, okay, yeah, I get that. I understand. Okay, so what, what happens when we exercise faith and we receive this grace and we're saved? What does it do for us on earth? Verse 10 answers that. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. He's the author. And we're the, the product that he has produced. Paul says that we are created for good works. Wait a minute, is that a conflict? We just said works can't do anything for us, and yet he creates us for good works. So what does that mean? Well, it means that salvation is not the end for us, it's the beginning. When we get saved, that's when our life begins to change. In fact, he says, In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the beginning. Life, real life, starts at that point of salvation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a new beginning. It's a new start. And he's created in us now this ability to do things right through the power of his Spirit working in us. New has come. We, we become living uh, or begin living at salvation. God has poured out the life of His Son so that we might live. That we might be alive in Christ. That new life, that vibrant life, that full life. We're His workmanship. The word in the original language is poema. It means workmanship. We're His project. The work of the one creating, not the work of the created. It's His work in us. We're His poem. We're we're His expression. Like an artist is always seeking to express himself in his work. You're God's workmanship. He's trying to express Himself through you. You know, as we behold the glory of the Lord in His work of salvation, we're being changed by that Holy Spirit that's in us. As God expresses Himself through us, He wants to do a new work in your life and mine. He wants our life to be an expression of Him to the world around us. We're His workmanship, His expression created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, we know that our salvation is not because of our works, it's by grace. But, but as God works in me, as God works in you, he's, he's doing a work that's creating something in us that will reveal Himself to the world around us. Works that have to do with an expression of Him and His love and His grace. And and so the works, the good works that, that happen are not for my salvation, they're because of my salvation. It's my response to God. It's your response to God and the goodness that He's poured out. Because of His incredible love, we respond to Him and life begins to change. We begin to radiate the glory of God and the things that we do in His kingdom. You know, so many times we, we try to make God respond to us. You realize God is the initiator, we're the responders? And we're always, you know, you look at religious systems, they say, okay, rub the beads, you say this prayer over and over and over again, and you get God to respond to you. 
God's already done enough. We're the ones that should respond to Him. He initiated His love for me, and I respond to that love. You know, when we come into this building to worship, our true worship is a response to how amazing God already is. We don't come in here and sing four songs so we can get God to do something for us. We, we come in here and we lift our voices and we extend that worship to God because of who He is and what He has already done on our behalf. I mean, it, it's like all through the week he's, he's been doing these amazing things and He's been, he's been revealing Himself and, and, and we come together and it's like, Wow! You know, you can let it out. This is an opportunity to, to let it come out of your mouth and tell him how great he is. It isn't to get him to do something for us. If that's the reason that you worship, then you've missed the true intent. We worship him because of who he is. We praise the Lord because of the fact that He's been so good to us already. He's already blessed my life and now it's, it's welling up inside of me and I, I let it out. It's, bless Your name, O Lord. That spontaneous response to the truest form of praise. He initiates, I respond. And, and so these good works that He talks about here that He has prepared beforehand are really a response because of His goodness that's already been poured out into us. Now, as God is working in us, He's preparing us for these good works that He determined should be accomplished for you. God has your future, my future, all mapped out already. He knows what He wants us to do on His behalf. He knows exactly the work that He wants to accomplish in us and through us in this life. When God created you, He had a a purpose for your life, an eternal purpose for your life. You know, it took till I was 20 years old to figure that out. But when I got it, I got it. I understood it. He he has plans for you and, and works that you should accomplish that will reveal His glory to the people in your life and the the people He may bring into your path. And and so, you know, I think it's wrong for us to think that the highest calling of God is somebody like the Apostle Paul or a missionary or, you know, somebody that's in full-time ministry. We think, you know, they've, they've sacrificed so much, they have the highest calling. No, it might be the highest calling for their life, but, but the highest calling of God for you and for me is to be in that place He wants us to be, serving how He wants us to serve. That's our highest calling. That's the best place to be. You know, we, we've talked much over the years about all of us having a role within the church and that God created us as a body of believers and, you know, He puts all these misfits together and, you know, you look at the people that he pulls together and you wonder, how in the world does anything happen? And yet, it's him. It's because he's involved in it. 
And it's engineered by him. It's, it's driven by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so he takes a bunch of misfits. He puts us together and he says, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do this and you do that. And, and collectively we come together and it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It works. It seems to move the cause of God forward so that he's glorified. Now, it doesn't make sense when we look at our own individual life, but it makes sense when we look at it from God's vantage point. We are the workmanship of God, specifically called to serve Him in a capacity of His choice. It's His choice. From the beginning of time, God knew that you would respond to His grace. He knew the day that you would be saved. He knew when I would be sitting on that rock in the middle of the desert. He knew that. He wasn't surprised. He didn't say, oh, wow, finally. You know, Gary came around. No, he knew before time began that day I would be saved. He knew what day you would respond to his grace. And in that foreknowledge, he also has a plan on what he wants to do with your life because you're saved. And so he's at work in you. You're his poema, his workmanship. And so it really is incumbent upon us to say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do with my life? How is it that you want to use my life? Not how can I use my life for the kingdom of God, but how do you want to use my life? And there's all kinds of ways that can happen. You know, I love to watch people work with our, our children's ministry. You know, oftentimes when, when people think about ministry, they say, well, you know, I, I think I'll just have to settle for children's ministry. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? Think about the results of children's ministry. When, when God puts a person into children's ministry, and, and they all of a sudden now have the ability to communicate with kids in a powerful way, reveal the truth of God to young people. And some of these young people truly get born again. And their lives understand God's grace. And some of them actually miss out on all of the stupidity that teen angels and young adults get into. And, and so... You can have a part in that, working with kids. It's not a lesser ministry. That's a powerful ministry. It's exciting to see those things happen. We have people that, that come and they clean this church every week, and, and, and that's their gift. They, they believe God has called them to do that, and they come. And, and, and you think about that, and you think, well, that's not a really like high-valued gift. I mean, cleaning toilets, mopping floors, and... Well, when you're using that toilet, you're blessed because they cleaned it. I mean, it would be a mess if they didn't. And, and so there is value. And, and so we can't discredit anything that the Lord brings into the life of the church to use. Some people are really gifted, you know, mechanically or, or, or such. I, I'm not that guy. You know, don't call me if your car is broken down and ask me what you should do. I just tell you to call a mechanic. Uh, I, I just don't, I, I don't have that kind of, in fact, I don't have many gifts. So I'm a, you're probably thinking, you know, every time he explains himself, he gets less and less important. Yeah, <laughs> I do like to eat, though. 
That is a gift. But but there are people that that can do that kind of stuff, and and they're a blessing to the body of Christ. They're a blessing to the life of the church. They they know how to fix ovens. They know how to you know disassemble and reassemble things, and you know so. You just ask the Lord, what is it that you want me to do? I mean, we have people on prayer teams. We have ushers. We have all of these places that in and of themselves, you could say, well, one's not more important than the other, or one's more important than the other. But in reality, they're not. They're collectively accomplishing what God wants to do because you're his workmanship. This church is his workmanship, his poema. And and he is forming it to be what he wants it to do, to be an expression of him into the lives of people that need to know him. And and so our position in that is to say, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm open to that. You're his workmanship, created to serve him. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. When you say yes, because... It happens almost every time. When you say, okay, Lord, take my life, use it. You have to understand that there is an enemy out there that will hate you for that decision, and he will come against you. We just learned in Nehemiah on Wednesday night that there there are discouraging enemies out there. There are Sanballats, Tobias, and Geshems that are out there that are going to speak words of discouragement to try to rip you off and to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. There's a real enemy that will try and rip you off from being that person who God wants you to be. Jesus said it like this in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his mission. But Jesus also said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Paul says it later in this book, in in chapter 6, He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. The enemy wants to rip you off. He wants to take you out of that place that God desires to express himself. He will lie to you. He will deceive you. He will basically do anything he can to keep you from experiencing the blessing of service to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you this morning, take the truth of Scripture. Let let that be the decision maker for you. Understand, you're his poema. He he wants to express himself through you in some way. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but God will. If you're honest with him, he will will show you what that is. And, And as he expresses himself through your life, you are going to be blown away at what he can do through a yielded life. So Christian, believe Him at His Word. Believe His Word over your own insecurities. 
Respond to this amazing grace, life-changing power, and you'll be amazed at how gifted your life will be. He will blow you away at what He's able to accomplish through your life. Now maybe you came here today as a skeptic. Well, if that's the case, the Lord wants to reveal Himself to you to take the the blinders off of your eyes this morning so that you can know this salvation that we've talked about. But you have to believe it. You have to take the step of faith and believe that when Jesus died, He died for you personally. And, and so I'm going to give you an opportunity here in just a moment when we pray, and, and you can respond to the Lord in His goodness and His grace. Let's pray.